The gospel lesson is taken from Luke's gospel, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus told. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, and how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise the word of the Lord. The divisions that we have in the human race are deep and intractable. I'm sure we all were reminded of this. You couldn't turn on television yesterday at any time without encountering uh, the trial that took place in Central Florida, the Trayvon Martin, George Zimmerman uh, murder trial. And um, regardless uh, of the trial, and uh, its merits or demerits, what it did point out are deep divides in our world. Now, these divides are deep and extremely serious in some cases. The Tamil Tigers, for instance, and the Singhalese in Sri Lanka set off the modern, if you will, terrorist movement. It wasn't among the Muslims, it was among the Buddhists and Hindus where you had random bombing. Uh, we, we find political hatreds all around the world. No matter where you go, you find political divides and hatreds. And of course, there are religious divides and hatreds. The Middle East, and this is what escapes a lot of people, is today, yes, surely, between Israel and the Arab nations surrounding it. But there is another divide within Islam that threatens to engulf the whole Middle East, and that is the warfare 
that is taking place between the Shiites of Iran and some of their cohorts scattered through many of the Arab countries and the Sunni Muslims. And it may very well be that over the next five years or so, you will see the face of the entire Middle East change due to religious hatred, but not between Jew and Arab, but between one Muslim party and another who will rule Egypt and Saudi Arabia, or will it be Iran? Those divides are deep. Sunni and Shia have been fighting for nearly 1,500 years. Now, all of these divides are deep and they are serious, but not one of them really is as deep as the divide that I'm going to talk about right now. And that is the divide between those who come into God's sanctuary every Lord's Day and worship Him and have their entire worldview, if you will, defined and circumscribed by that worship and those who don't. There is a greater divide between those who worship the God of the Bible and the gods of this world. It is not always obvious that it is deep, but it is deep, deeper than any divide as God's judgment will show in the end, and it is permanent. Jesus even spoke to this when he says, I came not to bring priests, but a sword. By the very fact that someone will be identified with Christ today, we know they become the subject of persecution. Nearly in every land in the Middle East and North Africa, in China and Korea, all the way through Asia, you find Christians being persecuted, not because they are disloyal, not because they are heading up political parties, but for simply not being part of the majority religion or ideology. More persecution is taking place today surrounding this divide and even what we have in the Middle East because the Middle East itself is persecuting Christians at an unprecedented level. Now, I, I've evoked this and invoked this whole matter to introduce you to Psalm 96. I've invoked this so that we might have some understanding of Psalm 96. I want to look at Psalm 96. The language and the phrasing are very familiar. When, when you heard that read, I'm sure that some of you said, oh, I've heard that. I've heard that. Oh, yes, that reminds me. The Lord reigns. Yes, I know that. But sometimes we need to look a little closer. This, this, this passage, this, this psalm is a glorious psalm. It is in some circles called a royal psalm, a psalm of enthronement. Scholars talk about some ceremonies that you don't find in the Bible that probably accounts for a psalm like this. At least once a year, maybe a king like David had a ceremony in the temple in which they recognized his kingship. 
Or maybe when a new king in Israel or Judah took the throne, you had a coronation with a ceremony of enthronement. But in every case in Israel, it was to remind them that there was a greater king who reigns over all. And so therefore, the king behind the king is the real authority. The earthly king is simply one who, who is granted authority to worship and serve in his name. And so we have this psalm. And in this sermon, I want you to see a very simple thesis. It's not complex, but it is one that we need to be reminded of over and over. And this psalm really says this, that there is one, only one, who reigns above and is to be praised and proclaimed throughout the earth until his son comes. Now, I've added the last part, but as you'll see, it builds the groundwork for the coming of Christ. Until he makes all things new, there is one God who reigns supreme above, who is to be praised, and who is to be declared the one Lord throughout all of creation. And so that is a simple thesis. It's almost a theme of the Bible. But I've chosen this at a certain point in my ministry, haven't I? When a man gets down to the end of his life even, and I'm, I don't believe I'm there, <laughs> you better listen to his words. He, he at least is revealing his heart. Uh, when a person comes to the end of their tenure of service, maybe the last things they say carry greater weight. Whenever the race is run, or whenever the last stone is laid, that becomes a very crucial and important point if you want to know what a person thinks or what is really on their heart. And through all the din of life, the noise and the flurry, sometimes we don't see the very simplest truths that we're pointing to. And I want to point you to a very simple truth, but a basic profound truth that God reigns and he is to be praised and proclaimed. Psalm 96 then represents what I want to say to you today. And I think that it is of great and utmost importance. And the first thing I want you to see about this psalm is that the Lord reigns and he is to be worshipped and praised. It's very simple, isn't it? If you read through the psalm, you would not have to have some expert commentator uh, through his commentary telling you what this psalm says. You know what it says. A plain and simple reading. It, it's not uh, recondite. It's not uh, hidden from you. It contains, in a sense, no secret except from those who do not believe it. And then there is a veil over their eyes. But for you who believe, you see the very simple, basic truth of this psalm and this passage. Now, I want to point out some things to you, though, maybe that escapes you in terms of structure. In verses 1 through 3 of this psalm, there are six imperatives. And for the children, an imperative is a commandment. You are commanded to do it. In verses 1, 2, and 3, we have six imperatives. Look at verse 1, for instance. 
we have two of them. Sing to the Lord a new song. You're commanded to do that. Sing to the Lord all the earth. And so the vision here is not just Israel, but it is universal. Sing to the Lord. Verse 2. And then also the fourth one, praise his name. The fifth one, read it with me in Psalm 2, verse 2. Proclaim his salvation day by day. And then we have in verse 3, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all people. All six imperatives put us under an obligation. And all six have to do with either singing or speaking. Four of them have to do with singing and two have to do with speaking. Let me talk about the singing first. This was actually sung. This psalm is called a new song to be sung. I don't want to go into why it's a new song today because that'll take me apart, but there's a reason. Come this evening at six o'clock, maybe we'll let the cat out of the bag of why it's a new song, at least from my perspective. Singing. What is singing here? It is worship. It is worship. Three times a year, the believers in Israel went up to Jerusalem. They're the great pilgrim feasts. Three times a year. Pentecost, booths, and of course, Passover. Jesus himself is going up to Jerusalem for Passover. People even try to date how long his ministry was by the number of times he went up to Jerusalem. How did they go up? We have Psalms of Ascent in the Old Testament, and they were sung by the crowds as they moved their way toward Jerusalem to the temple, the place where God was to be worshipped. And so singing, in a real sense, is shorthand for worship. Shorthand for worship. We don't assemble here in this church without singing, do we, for worship. We always worship. We always worship through singing. Ascribe that glory that is due His name, and we believe it is done through the singing of God's words. Worship. This whole psalm is about worshiping God. You say, Pastor, how fundamental is worship to the cause of Christ? to the whole idea of biblical religion. I want to point you to a passage in the New Testament that tells us that the supreme activity that you will ever perform in your life is to worship God. It is the most important thing that you will ever do in this life, the most important activity that you will ever engage in. Now, to do that, I want to turn to John chapter 4, verses 21. Uh, through 25. Now, I don't want to go through this passage and exegete it. It's not on my agenda. But I have one purpose in turning to this passage. And it is to remind you, starting in verse 21, of how important worship is to the cause of Christ and to ascribe that glory that is due God's name. Now, if you read through that passage, you know that Jesus meets this woman at the well. Almost everyone uses it, and rightly so, as a text for evangelism. But sometimes often overlooked 
is the conclusion of what Jesus said to her. Starting in verse 21, Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, he says, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain that you have set up, my addition, nor in Jerusalem, which is the true sanctuary of worship. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. In other words, true worship is found in Israel because the true God is found in Israel. He goes on to say, we worship what we do know for salvation is of the Jews. Not every religion is acceptable. The one true religion. Yet, notice what he says, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And then this little phrase at the end of the sentence. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. I might be wrong on this. But I think it's the only place in the Bible where God seeks anything from us, per se. It may be implied in certain areas. He commands us to do certain things. But here in the text, Jesus says that the Father seeks worshipers. So how high of a priority is worship in the Scripture? It is the ultimate, not the penultimate next to it, not the third place or fourth place or fifth place, but it has first place. Now, why would such an activity have first place? Because of who God is as to his being. Look at verse 4 of this psalm. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. There are many beings in the universe. It may very well be true that we are not the highest being in the universe apart from God. The angels are superior in many respects and ways. There are many inferior beings to us, the animals of the field, your dog, your cat. There is a chain of being, and that chain of being, as you go up it, has greater importance. And at the top of that may be the angels. You say, why didn't you mention God? Because he's uncreated. He's a being like no other. No one brought him into existence. Nor can they, if you will, Put him out of existence. You can only murder God, if you will, by ignoring him, but you've not ended his being. You, in some sense, have murdered yourself. It's suicide. So that one who is above all worlds is to be praised. And he is to be praised because he is great and to be feared. Now, the Hebrew is a very colorful uh, has a very colorful language. And here, he is great and to be feared means he is sovereign. Sovereign over all things. Now, I want to do something, and I want to call to your mind, who is this sovereign God? Well, you can have an exercise here with me for a second. Turn in your hymn books to page 869, if you will. If you turn in your hymn books to page 869... There is a question in the Shorter Catechism. And it's getting to the point as to who 
is this God that we worship? And in question four, we teach our children, and I hope you know it. And the question is a very simple question. What is God on page 869? The fourth question of the Shorter Catechism. Notice the answer. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. God is an eternal spirit, infinite. God has no rival. All things are subject to him. Therefore, he elicits from the creature their praise and their worship. God is to be worshipped and feared because he is infinite and eternal. He has no rival. I want you to notice what it says here as it goes on in the text. For all the gods of the nations are idols. It says in Hebrews, no gods. So we translate it as idol. Idol means emptiness. No gods. Everything that comes under the name God is a no god. Because there's only one God who rightly deserves that title. Everything else isn't an idol. For all the gods of the nations are idols. I happened to read Gerhard von Rad. Now, that's a new name. I suspect you know it's German. He was a great Old Testament scholar following World War II. He died far too young, but he quotes Karl Barth on this passage. And Karl Barth wrote this. I'm going to read it word for word because I think it's well put. Von Rad says, Barth wrote this. The world's secret is the non-existence of its gods. The world's secret is the non-existence of its gods. There's only one God. We're being brought and swept in right to the first commandment. Are we not? Only one God. And he is to be worshipped and praised for he is sovereign over all things. God has no rival. Anything that you exalt as God, including yourself, is a no God. And the secret is out if you read the scriptures. You are not God. The reason we have so many divisions in the modern world is that we have so many who raise themselves to be in the place of God. They have not seen the beauty of God in all of his glory and holiness. They lift themselves up in his place. And it causes divisions. Strife. Murder. We talk about today the culture of death, and the culture of death exists simply because human beings have usurped the place of God. Also notice in this, in verses 11 and 12, even the non-human aspects of creation worship God. That's why I opened up with the hymn that we did. It's a hymn of creation. I could have chosen four or five there in a row. Maybe we'll sing another one next Sunday. Everything is created by God. Even the trees and the rocks cry out to his praise and his honor and his glory. Now, I don't know how they do that, for it's not in our sense of the word. 
we only know one way to communicate with God. And uh, no doubt there's no communicate in animate, inanimate objects, but, but surely they're to his praise. A testimony of who he is as he created all things. And one of the things I love is that redemption is redeeming everything, not just human beings, restoring everything. As, as the birth hymn of Jesus, the Christmas carol says, he redeems as far as the curse is found. The curse is upon everything. You know, we have a great basis and theological basis to love all of creation, to love nature. I hope you do. I hope you do. I hope you love everything that God has made. Uh, there was a time, I think, as a kid, I was pretty hard-hearted. I could kill things. I have a difficult time today, unless it's necessary, to kill a bug even. No, I'm not uh, Mahatma Gandhi. But doesn't everything have a purpose? It's a creature of God. Now, surely the ant is not as important, and I've killed some ants this week, not as important as a horse. And a horse is not impo as important as a human being. But everything is precious unto the glory of God. I want you to see who this God is. Everything testifies to Him. It's only human beings in their unbelief who refuse to ascribe that glory that is due His name to sing the new song. I want you to notice another thing about worship here. And there's not one particular text, but all through this, this psalm, there is nothing but joy. Have you noticed that? Joy, 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 joy. When we get into ourselves and into our world in such a way that we only look inwardly and horizontally, we can become pretty depressed. We can say, I think, with Whitman... That nature is red in tooth and claw. That when I look at nature, I see nothing but the lion running down the little rhino or the antelope. And human beings treat each other terribly. And it can depress you. But if I read this psalm right, you need another perspective, a perspective that takes you out of yourself and out of the misery of this world to look unto that one who reigns supreme. You know why you can finally and in the end rejoice? It is because God reigns supreme. And he will conclude the thing to his own honor and glory. Nothing is out of control. Nothing. We receive bad news, and it's a blow. My family's received bad news. But it's not the last word. Jesus reigns. He was raised from the dead. And he's coming again to put all things right to his own honor and his glory. If I read verse 13 right in this psalm, he's already come and is judging the world in one sense. But he comes at the end of history to conclude and ratify that judgment. You see, judgment of the world began at the cross of Christ. Now, what about the speaking? There are two speaking imperatives here. Proclaim, he says in verse 2, and declare, he says in verse 3. Proclaim is the same Hebrew equivalent for gospel. When this word proclaim was translated into the Septuagint, that is 170 years before Christ, the Old Testament rendering of the Old Testament in Greek. 
it became euangelion, gospel. Same root gave rise to that. Here I think we are seeing how much this psalm prepares us and points to Christ and his redemption. This in one way foreshadows the gospel when you find the word proclaim and declare. What does it mean to proclaim and declare God's glory? Not only do you worship him, but there is, if you will, an outreach teaching mechanism here built into the psalm. This is the second set of imperatives, two of them. Proclaim and declare, says the psalmist. Now this, of course, is committed primarily to the church. What does it mean for the church? The church must always be a teacher that teaches its families and its families teach their children. Over and over, if there's been a thing that I have emphasized at least for the last 15 years or 20 years or 25 years, I don't know, but it is handing on the faith to your children. We ought not to ever lose our children to unbelief. It is our responsibility to teach them about the one true God and to pass on the faith to them that they might make it their own. This is crucially important, and it is where Christians in America have failed in a great way. Not in every case. Thank God for that. But there has been too much failure, and we can see it and document it in the statistics from the 50s to the present. A failure to see the faith passed on to our children. We must pass this faith on, declare it and proclaim it. But also, this is the missionary impulse. We must never cease to be a missionary-minded church that looks beyond its own things and passes the gospel on to others. Every soul is precious in the sight of God. These imperatives then include the educational ministry and the missionary ministry of the church. Proclaim. Proclaim. I want to make one little observation here. What do we proclaim? Well, we don't really proclaim nature per se. I want you to notice that you're not going to find God as such in nature. It's ambiguous message. If you're a believer, you see God in nature. But the other believer looks at nature and doesn't see it. So we really don't turn to nature and even try to form arguments of cause and effect and say, you know, something has to be behind this and we think we've made our case. It almost never persuades anyone. We actually look to history where God's intervened in history. We don't look to general history, though I'm sure in Providence we can find the hand of God. What we look to is special history or redemptive history and that is in the scriptures. We are to proclaim what we find in salvation history as recorded in the Bible. And not just any salvation event, though, will do. You can tell all the stories of Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah, and that, that, that's, that's basic and that is good. But our focus is not upon Moses or Jeremiah or King David. It is upon Jesus Christ who truly came into the world to seek and to save the lost. You have not done your children right until they know that. It's a solemn obligation. This is momentous. 
This is very momentous, these commands here, to worship and to praise and declare. Worship, it keeps you rooted in reality. You know there are no other gods but the one. Keeps you rooted in deep reality. Keep your eye upon Jesus. And you'll keep things in perspective. And to declare his name. It's all important. Now, I have a book I brought with me today. It's, uh, it's the second volume, or the number, volume number one, actually, but there's a little pre-volume, of the great ideas in the great books. How many are uh, volumes in the great book section? There are 100, aren't there? I don't know. 50? I have a set of them. It was given to me about 10 years ago. And they have two volumes called Synopticons. They are, a Synopticon is a, to explain everything else that goes on afterwards. And they have a section 29 on God. Now these are the world's greatest thinkers. I want to read you one paragraph in conclusion today. And this is what it says about the article on God. With the exception, now remember he's talking about all 50 books or 100, but 50 books, I believe. With the exception of certain mathematicians and physicists, all the authors are the, of the great books, all the authors of the great books are represented in this chapter that he's writing. Every last one, every last idea, political, sociological, psychological, history, whatever. In sheer quantity of references, as well as in variety, it, that is, this, is the largest chapter in this book. The reason is obvious, and here is what I want you to get. More consequences for thought and actions follow from the affirmation or denial of God than from answering any other basic question in life. I don't even know if this person's a believer. But they understood how important the answer to the question is, does God reign? And if he does, you must worship him and you must declare his glory. You must. You have no choice. It's all important. You need to support God's work to the best of your ability. Marshal your resources for the worship and declaration of who God is. It's the most fundamental question there is. And when the Lord comes for judgment, I think he will roll back the whole scene in a panoramic way and you will see how central God is and how frivolous all this other stuff for he makes all the difference 
He is to be worshipped, and he is to be declared. Praise be to God. Amen.